The teacher alleged that his denied him due process as required by the Fourth Amendment. The Supreme Court held that job security, whether it was expressed or implied, was a property right that could not be abridged without a procedure due process. A similar argument has also been raised by legal theorists who argue that even in the private sector state, the federal government should intervene in the employment relationship because private employees are also entitled to receive constitutional protection. The courts have also protected the right of public employees in investigatory interviews when potential criminal charges are involved. In 1967, the United States Supreme Court ruled that public employees could not be forced to choose between losing their job and giving up their Fifth Amendment rights, the right to remain silent. Ordinarily, if questioned about committing a crime, any individual is given to Miranda warning. The person has the right to remain silent, but anything that is volunteered can be used against a person in a court of law. The right to remain silent when questioned by a government authority and not self-incriminate is guaranteed under the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Accordingly, public employees face a dilemma. On the other hand, they have the right to remain silent under the Constitution. On the other, since the employer is the government, a refusal to answer a public employer's question can constitute insubordination and grounds for termination. The Supreme Court resolved this dilemma by creating what has become known as a Garrity Warning. This warning informs that the employee that he or she will be questioned as part of official investigation. It guarantees the employee that anything he or she cannot be used later in a court of law to prosecute the employee. Once a Garrity warning is issued, the employee must answer the employer's question or face disciplinary action. These answers can be used in disciplinary proceedings, but not criminal proceedings. The existence of a property right to a public job has offered afforded public employees expanded due process rights. Under a 1985 court decision, every public employee is entitled to a hearing prior to termination. Page 11. This right was established in a case filed by James Lodermill, a Cleveland school district security guard who was not permitted to respond to or challenge his dismissal for alleged dishonesty in completing his job application. The court ruled that an essential principle of due process is that a rep reprivation of life, liberty, or property job be preceded by notice and an important opportunity for hearing appropriate to the nature of the case. Public employees now have a right to respond to the employer's allegations of misconduct through a so-called Lottermill hearing before they can be terminated. Guidelines for Human Resources Practitioners As government mandates the court decisions have intruded on the employment relationship, it would appear that society has accepted indeed embraced the external regulation of workplace standards and conditions. 
The Human Resource, or HR, practitioner may be aware of the legal consequences of an employment decision, but offer other members of management are not. In fact, management may well be hostile to the changes necessary to comply with the government regulations. Hostile management often considers these regulations to be an interference with its employment decisions. It is therefore the duty of the HR practitioner to make other managers aware of the legal consequences of regulations and applicable laws and obtain legal counsel when necessary. As the human resource function of management attempts to solve legal problems, solutions must be weighed in light of employee relations consequences. Exposure to Lawsuits Throughout this book, the text will often refer to exposure to a lawsuit. Nothing can stop an employee from seeking a lawyer to represent him or her in the lawsuit. If the facts of the case indicates that the employee has some likelihood of prevailing, the lawyer may take the case on a contingency basis. If the facts show it will be a difficult case to win, the lawyer either may refuse to take the case or will demand an upfront fee before taking it. Exposure, as used in this book, means that the employer's action have developed facts that give an employee a good chance of prevailing in court. When appropriate policies and procedures of the employer are in place, there is reduced exposure and little chance of the employee prevailing. This may cause the lawyer to demand a fee that may in turn result in averting the lawsuit since employee may not take the risk of losing and paying a fee. This common discharge to cases where the employee's income has stopped. It should be remembered, however, the only person who wins a lawsuit is the person who avoids it. The employer must prevent exposure to lawsuits by putting policies and practices in place so that the employee is discouraged from initiating a lawsuit. Once the lawsuit is started, it is too late to reconsider because time and legal fees must be expended in defense of the employer. The HR practitioner must therefore find a way to communicate to operating management that the employer may not have a full range of choices at its disposal when dealing with employees. The use of such terms as probationary period, permanent employee, merit increases, white collar, gold collar, or annual salary is a job offer, and personally personality problems on a termination form may well create exposure to a lawsuit. The use of these terms should be avoided. Human resources administrators are faced with an increasing number of seemingly conflicting legal and employee relation issues. Therefore, they must have enough knowledge of the law to be aware of the legal implications and when seek to legal counsel page 12. A vital part of human resource administration involves advising management personnel of the consequences of the failure to apply the law as interpreted by a regulatory agency. As new laws are enacted and government agencies created to enforce them, challengeable gray areas are also created. Structure of the courts 
it is important for the reader to have a basic understanding of court structure in the United States as well as a knowledge of legal citations and references. Not only will this assist in understanding the references in this text, but it will also aid the practitioner in dealing with legal documents and legal counsel. Human resources professionals will frequently be required to respond to legal documents and inquiries from attorneys. Some of these documents and inquiries may be routine, but if the practitioner is uncertain concerning the appropriate response, an attorney should be consulted. Some HR professionals may have the luxury of an in-house attorney available for consultation. Others may be required to involve a superior before the decision to contact outside counsel is made. Whatever the case, there is no substitute for competent legal advice when a legal question arises. The court structure for both state and federal government is as follows. For federal, district court, appeals court, supreme court. For state, district court, appeals court, supreme court. The supreme court in both federal and state structure is the last court of appeal. Some statutes allow all administrative ruling to be appealed. If so, most of them provide for the district court to hear the matter first with appropriate appeals to the appellate court. Some statutes allow the appellate court of supreme court to hear the dispute initially, thereby omitting the lower courts. The federal courts of the United States are structured at three levels district court, appellate courts, and supreme court. The district court is where the case normally begins. All evidence is recorded and witness, witnesses testify. In certain cases, the jury will participate, but in other cases, the judge makes the decision. The federal district court decisions are cited in this text as West Federal Supplement Reports. Sometimes they are cited as, for example, 1995 D.C. Mont Lexus 560. An example of citation would be 560 F. Sup. 820 D.C. Mont 1995. In this example, 560 is the volume number, F. Sup. is Federal Supplement Reports, and 820 is the page number. D.C. Mont is the District Court of Montana where the case was decided, and 1995 is the year of the decision. Although district court decisions are important, they are not considered precedent setting. If not appealed, they apply only to area where the court has jurisdiction. The employer must decide, after consulting an attorney, whether the district court decisions ne necessitates changing a policy within a certain time after a decision is rendered, usually 30 days. Either party may appeal the decision to the next higher court. This court must consider the appeal. The appellate court considers whether the decision of the lower court was proper as to the law and the facts presented. The appellate court will usually not hear new evidence. These cases are cited in this text as F2D 5th CIR 2010. 
The F2D stands for the West Publishing Federal Reporter. 2D series, the Fifth Circuit, is where the case was decided, and the year of the decision was 2010. Lexis is another reporting system, similar to West, so it will be cited as 2010 U.S. APPL. There are 11 circuit courts of appeal in the United States and 9 federal courts that are divided into geographic areas. The D.C. District Court Circuit is the 20th Appellate Court and has jurisdiction over the entire country. Page 13 Most lawyers respect circuit court opinions because few are appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. The highest court in the system, which hears a little over 1% of the appeals field. Supreme Court The Supreme Court doesn't have to grant review of the appellate court decision. Appeal for such review is called a writ of certiorari. If the Supreme Court refuses to review, the decision of the appellate court becomes the law in the circuit where it was decided. The Supreme Court will not hear any new evidence but will make its decision based on the oral arguments, case law, statutes, and legal reasoning of the lower courts. Both the appellate court and the Supreme Court review whether the rules of procedure were followed in the district court. All federal judges are appointed for life by the President of the United States with the consent of the Senate. Presidents tend to appoint judges of their own political philosophy, so one president in office may appoint most of the judges in a certain court, and another president of a different philosophy may appoint those in a higher court. Often the philosophy influences the interpretation of the law. As a result, upper courts will often reverse lower courts. Most state courts have basically the same structure as the federal court, only they interpret the state laws. The court where the case starts is the state district court, then there is the appellate court and the state supreme court. As in the federal system, the appellate court must consider the appeals from the district court, but the supreme court can decide what cases it will hear. Explanation of Legal Documents The human resources professional should become familiar with basic legal terms. Often servicing of court proceedings against the company is made to the persons in the HR office when the matter involves employees. Most legal documents have a time limit in which they have to be acted on. It is highly important that the documents are ex expedited promptly. Failure to act within the time limits can result in liability by default or other serious legal consequences. In all legal documents, the time limits are clearly stated. The court serving the papers and the attorneys involved are clearly stated on the documents. Interrogatory Interrogatories are a set or series of written questions served on one party in a proceeding. The purpose is a factual examination of a prospective witness. They are used mostly in pretrial discovery to obtain information to aid the attorney in preparing the case and to help in selecting witnesses. The personal practitioner will sometimes receive 
the interrogatories from an opposing attorney to obtain information about employees. An attorney should always review the information before it is released. Answers to interrogatory questions are not done under oath but are often used as a basis for questions that are answered under oath. Answers can also determine how the attorney will try the case. The request for interrogatories comes directly from the attorney requesting them. They do not need court approval unless objected to by the opposing party. Exhibit 1.1 is an interrogatory served on a company where the personal department would supply the answers. In the interest of brevity, only enough questions are included to show a typical interrogatory. Disposition The disposition is a pre-trial discovery procedure whereby the testimony of a witness is taken outside of open court pursuant to permission by the court to take testimony from a witness. Most questions during dispositions are based on but not restricted to the interrogatories. A disposition differs from interrogatories in that it is taken under oath and is used under certain conditions in court proceedings for questioning the witness. When a disposition is taken, it is contemplated that the person will be a witness in the trial, but this is not always the case. When an employee is requested to give a disposition, often there is a sense of insecurity Although the other attorneys may be present, the employee should request the legal counsel from the company to be present. This is a policy matter for management and legal counsel to determine. Some companies consider it good employee relations to give security to an employee when giving a disposition. Others feel that the presence of one attorney representing the employee interest is insufficient. Subpoena. The subpoena is an order directed to a certain person to appear and at a certain time and give testimony on a certain matter. The most common subpoena in the personal department is to appear and bring all documents and written materials related to the subject matter of the case. This is called a subpoena ducis tecum. Often the re records are all that the attorney wants. Production of the records satisfies the subpoena. It is not necessary for the person in charge of the records to testify. However, permission from the attorney signing the subpoena not to appear is required. When receiving a subpoena duces tecum, the attorney requesting the documents should always be asked whether only the records are wanted or whether the, rec the person subpoenaed has to testify. A lot of time will be saved and only the documents must be pr produced. Also, it is not advisable for the HR practitioner to appear in the courtroom and be called as a witness. He or she will be subject to cross-examination and personal document marked confidential as between company counsel and the employee. Need not to be produced. Exhibit 1.2 is a typical subpoena duces tecum often received in workers' compensation.
and divorce suits. Subpoenaducis tecum is also used in criminal proceedings. Summons A summons is an order served on a defendant to appear in court, to give an answer within a specified time. The nature of the lawsuit is stated in the complaint, and it is important to note that the time and date when the summons is received, as the answer must be within a specified time, usually 20 or 30 days. Complaint A complaint is a civil proceeding, it is the first or initial pleading by the plaintiff. The plaintiff is usually served with a summons. Under the rules of civil procedure, it is contained certain information about the case, such as the alleged wrong, the names of the parties, the county and name of the court, where the action is brought, and the relief sought by the plaintiff. The HR department should not respond to a complaint, but refer it to legal counsel. Increase in litigation the entry of the law into the management function is not a phenomenon exclusive to human resources, but it is indicative of the growth of the law in all business and social activities. Beginning in the early 1970s, there was a growing concern for people to be protected legally from every problem, even from their own gullibility. Accordingly, litigation has grown so rapidly that it is difficult to know the total number of pending cases on the dockets of the courts. Indeed, the stigma associated with the lawsuit has almost disappeared. Doctors are sued by patients, lawyers by clients, parents by their children, brothers sue brothers and sellers sue customers. Social legislation such as anti-discrimination laws, the Occupational Safety and Health Act, the Civil Rights Act of 1991, the Employee Retirement Insurance Act, the Immigration Reform and Control Act, Consolidated Omnibus Budget, Recal Reconciliation Act, Family and Medical Leave Act, and Americans with Disabilities Act have given added legal opportunities to individuals never before experienced in judicial history. The alphabet soup of government regulatory agency creates a thriving climate for those who would redress their grievances in a court law. Page 17 When to use legal counsel When legal documents are received that require an answer, they should be referred to legal counsel. Sometimes these documents can be interpreted as admitting liability which should never be admitted without advice of counsel. Once liability is admitted or implied, there is nothing left to mitigate. The company is at the mercy of the court or regulatory agency. Written agreements that can be interpreted as enforceable contracts should either drafted or reviewed by an attorney. If a layperson drafts a contract, it is more likely to be challenged. In the event of latent liability, the drafter is protected into the contract, is reviewed by an attorney. No documents should be signed without understanding the terms or having it explained by counsel. When the employer is involved, there should be some control on who has author authority to sign 
because any member of management can bind the corporation if there is reason to believe that the person signing has authority to do so. The erosion of the at-will doctrine has caused many astute employers to have legal counsel review all these charges. The lawyer will determine whether there is a possible exposure to a lawsuit. This is a good procedure when there is any doubt. Voluntary quits in some situations can be constructive discharge, and if that possibility exists, it should be reviewed by counsel. Case 1.1 The Discharged Executive Dan was a self-employed 60-year-old financial advisor with a long history of administrative and leadership experience. Due to health issues, he had left his prior employment and was working part-time. At various times during his career, Dan had served as a controller of a small company, a local elected official, a city manager, and the owner and CEO of the consulting company. When the small suburban city in which the resided approached him about becoming the city finance director, he saw a good opportunity to acquire employer subsidized health insurance, enhance his pension plan, and earn a comfortable salary until full retirement. He planned to work for the city for five years and fully retire by the age 68. Prior to assuming the finance director's job, Dan advised his supervisor, the city manager, about his health problems, which would require him to work from home frequently and possibly take extended leave. The city manager had no objection to his and assured Dan he was being employed in an executive position and would not be subject to regular attendance at the city's office so long as he completed his work. During his second year of employment with the city, Dan experienced heart problems that, can, that caused him to hospitalize followed by an extended period of recuperation at home. Although his health improved somewhat, he had difficulty walking and continued to work extensively at home. His prolonged absence from the office was noticed by city officials, and the manager became increasingly uncomfortable about the fact that Dan was rarely in the office, even though his work was always up to date. After several unproductive conversations with Dan about his work schedule and continued absence from the office, the city manager told Dan he would have to return to work in the office on a regular basis. When Dan failed to comply, he was terminated. What exposure to legal action does the city have, assuming that Dan was an employee at will? Does he have grounds for a wrongful discharge suit? Does the city have exposure to age discrimination complaint? Page 18 Case 1.2 The Injured Driver Ken was a truck driver for a regional freight carrier. He was paid $12 an hour and typically worked a 40-hour week, although when work was light, he was sent home early and his hours and pay were accordingly reduced. One day, he injured his back while unloading his truck at a delivery point. When he returned to the terminal, he notified the employer of his injury. 
Because Ken lived in a state adjacent to the employer's terminal, he had been omitted, the employer claimed unintentionally, from the list of drivers that the employer had submitted and paid on the workers' compensation insurance. Since the employer was unsure if Ken was covered, he told Ken not to file a workers' compensation claim, but to go to the employer's doctor for treatment. Ken did as he was told, was treated by the employer's doctor who sent the bill to the employer and felt that his back was much better after a week of treatment and rest. Ken returned to work the following week, but he was told that the business was slow and that he wasn't needed. The employer promised to schedule Ken for work as soon as work picked up and his back injury was fully healed. Ken waited for two weeks checking regularly with the employer to see if he was scheduled, but the employer continued to put him off. At this point, Ken filed a workers' compensation claim only to discover that the employer had no workers' compensation coverage in the state where Ken resided. When the employer continued to refuse to schedule him for work, Ken went to an attorney who filled a wrongful discharge suit against the employer or Ken's behalf. What is the likelihood that Ken will prevail? What arguments is he likely to present in court? Case 1.3 The Disgruntled Secretary Sharon was a secretary for a small company. She wanted to return to college and complete the requirements for a degree but was unable to do so because of her work schedule. She mentioned this to her roommate, Marcia, who suggested that she apply for an open secretarial position at the candy company where Marcia worked. Marcia showed Sharon the candy company's handbook that listed their employment benefits. Although the hourly wages at the two companies were comparable, Sharon was very interested in the flex time arrangement described in the handbook. It allowed clerical employees to work an 8-hour period between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. The handbook also included a provision that employees would be terminated only for cause. Sharon applied for the open position at the candy company and was hired. However, her new supervisor wanted Sharon to work the same hours that she did and refused to allow Sharon to leave before 4.30 p.m. to attend classes. When Sharon complained, the supervisor told her that she would have to wait until she, wa she was more familiar with her work before she could utilize the flex time provision. Several months later, Sharon again complained about her inflexible work schedule. She was instructed to stop complaining and do as you are told. When she went over the supervisor's head and complained to the HR department, her supervisor terminated her for being uncooperative and insubordinate. On what basis might Sharon contest her discharge? What is an implied contract? What might the employer have done to reduce its exposure in this case? Summary Chapter 1 introduces the concept of employment regulation together with the factors that influence its growth in the United States and traces the development of federal and state legislation and regulations from the late 19th through 20th centuries.
page 19. It also discusses the impact of common law doctrine of employment at will and describes the erosion of the doctrine through legislation and court decisions. The chapter goes on to explain the impact of contract law on court decisions concerning the em employment relationship and to examine the notion of implied contracts. Chapter 1 continues with explanation of the differences in the way of courts view public versus private sector employees suggests some guidelines for human resources practitioners and concludes with an explanation of the federal and state court structure in the United States. Questions for discussion 1. Explain how the industrialization and urbanization of the United States in the late 19th century changed the nature of employment. 2. Identify three reforms initiated during the Progressive Era. 3. Define employment at will in your own words. Why did this doctrine become viewed as harsh, immoral, or unfair from an employee's perspective? 4. Why are some employees likely to resist or attempt to avoid requirements to demonstrate just cause before terminating an employee? 5. How does a whistleblower law serve to effectuate good public policy? 6. What is a retaliatory discharge? 7. Only one state, Montana, has adopted a so-called wrongful discharge statute. What is the intent of such a statute and why do you think no other states or the federal government have passed wrongful discharge legislation? 8. Why are collective contracts of employment, collective bargaining agreements, relatively common yet individual employment contracts are rare? 9. Give an example of a situation in which a court is likely to find an existence of an implied contract of employment. 10. What were the main purposes of the Pendleton Act? 11. Why were public employees excluded from coverage under the National Labor Relations Act in 1935? 12. Why are public employees considered to have property rights in employment, whereas private sector employees are not considered to have such rights? 13. What is the purpose of an interrogatory? 14. Where is a lawsuit alleging wrongful discharge most likely to be filled? 15. As a human resource representative, what may you have be required to do if you are served with a supuena ducis tecum?